Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, California Attorney General Rob Bonta last month sued Meta, arguing that its Instagram and Facebook platforms use manipulative features that are harming kids' mental health. And in September, his office sued ExxonMobil and other oil giants, alleging they misled the public about the climate effects of fossil fuels. We'll talk to Bonta about the high-profile cases he's brought on California's behalf and about his office's police violence investigations, including his recent decision not to charge four Anaheim police officers who shot and killed an unarmed man. We sit down with State Attorney General Rob Bonta after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. A U.S. Supreme Court hearing today over a federal law that bans people under a domestic violence restraining order from having a gun is being closely watched by Californians and perhaps no one more closely than State Attorney General Rob Bonta. California is a state that is taking steps to address gun violence as it evolves from domestic violence. And the U.S. Supreme Court case, the Rahimi case, threatens all of that. Should the court's conservative majority rule that the federal law is unconstitutional, it could undercut and even invalidate California's laws that prohibit dangerous people from having firearms. Attorney General Rob Bonta joins me now to talk about this and other issues, including how his office is handling investigations into police killings of unarmed people, as well as the cases he's bringing against big tech and big oil. Thank you for sitting down with us on Forum, Attorney General. Good morning, Mina. I'm honored to be here with you. So you said the Supreme Court case, the U.S. v. Rahimi, it's a challenge to a federal law that bans gun possession by people under domestic violence restraining orders. You say it threatens California. Tell us more about that. How do you think about this case and the impact it could have on our state? Let me first say in short that the federal law should be upheld in the U.S. versus Rahimi case. I, I woke up at, uh, to, to listen to the argument this morning and... and um, uh, track some of the the debate and and hope and believe that the U.S. Supreme Court will will do as it should based on the Constitution, the law, and the facts here, which is uphold the federal law. And in short, gun violence restraining orders, domestic violence restraining orders, orders that prevent those who are proven to be violent to not follow the law, to be unsafe, uh, to be irresponsible, um, and, and prevent them from having guns. 
That is a sound, constitutional, database, common sense approach. Many states throughout the nation have adopted that approach. California has adopted that approach. And the data doesn't lie. If a individual involved in, in domestic violence, uh, if you introduce a gun to that situation, there is over a thousand percent um, greater likelihood that the abuser will kill the victim. And uh, we have to listen to the data. And we have to um, also uh, be constitutionally compliant, which uh, this approach certainly is. There is um, history and um, experience from the days of uh, soon after the founding that show that individuals who were dangerous, unlawful, um, violent, were prohibited from having guns. So it's very consistent with existing U.S. Supreme Court law. And in the case of Brahimi, of course, he assaulted his girlfriend, shot at a bystander who witnessed the assault, was put under the restraining order, threatened another woman with a gun, and then was involved in five other shootings, including at a driver who was in a car accident that he was involved with and at a fast food restaurant when it declined his friend's credit card. And so, yes, the Fifth Circuit's decision to basically vacate his criminal conviction, that's what's before the U.S. Supreme Court today. And you are talking about when you talk about the data and you released this report yesterday that shared a lot of the data, you said that domestic violence and gun violence are deeply, grimly, and inextricably intertwined. Can you just say a little bit more about your office's findings that might be new to our listeners? Absolutely. And, and, and let me just first say thank you for putting the, the human dimension to the U.S. versus Rahimi case. Sometimes we think about con we talk about constitutional amendments. We talk about data, uh, but we don't often enough talk about people. And this is a, a, a woman who had been abused, had been the victim of violence, of threats. She did what she was supposed to do. She went through the legal process, which afforded due process to Mr. Rahimi to get a restraining order that protected her and her child. Mr. Rahimi exhibited multiple times his proclivity to and his engagement in violence. And uh, for her to not be able to be protected in this way, I think it shocks the conscience of many. It is a no-brainer uh, that the federal law should be upheld, and certainly under these facts and circumstances uh, in the U.S. versus Rahimi case. And yes, domestic violence and gun violence are tragically and inextricably interlinked. Uh, domestic violence... Um, those involved in domestic violence, when a, when a gun is involved in the situation, uh, it leads to homicide. And uh, we see uh, mass shooters. Uh, many of them have experience as either victims of domestic violence or perpetrators of domestic violence. So the, the statistical and database link between domestic violence and gun violence is very strong. We also see the, 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 the counterpoint or the, or the remedies that have been put in place in California uh, based on that data having impact. Uh, in California over the last number of years, we have reduced from 60 to 80 percent the, um, the, the outcomes when it comes to uh, domestic violence uh, uh, incidents involving guns, uh, domestic violence incidents involving um, gun-related homicides, uh, uh, domestic violence-related homicides of children, domestic violence-related homicides of women. They have all gone down because of the restraining orders that we have, the, um, the, the removal actions that we have put in place in California and the, and the you know, gun violence and domestic violence restraining orders that we have in place. So this is not about a, a, a prospective theory or hypothesis of what could be. We know 
uh, based on um, retrospective observation that restraining orders save lives. It, it, you can't say it more, more simply. Domestic violence restraining orders, gun violence restraining orders, they save lives, and we should continue to have them in place. The U.S. versus Rahimi decision should not be one that strikes down this uh, data-driven, constitutionally compliant, common-sense policy. A lot of California's gun laws are facing challenges. Can you give us a sense of how your office is defending the challenges. Give us a sense of the cases that are pending against California from Second Amendment challenges. You know, we've had policies in California over the last 30 years that have essentially turned our gun violence experience around from being a state with some of the highest firearm mortality rates in the nation to now 30 years later because of the common sense gun laws we put in place being one of the states with the lowest firearm mortality rates. It is causal. It is because of the steps that we've taken. What have those steps been? We've had things like universal background checks, waiting periods, uh, bans on assault weapons, bans on large capacity magazine um, magazines, uh, red flag laws. Those are the gun violence restraining orders and domestic violence restraining orders we've just been talking about. All of those combined have kept Californians safer, um, saved more lives. Over 140,000 Americans would be alive today if other states in the nation adopted the same policies that California has adopted. And some of those policies are, are under threat. We are defending them in in court. We've uh, There's a, a, been a, a federal district judge who has struck down our assault weapons ban, who struck down our, our large capacity magazine ban, and we immediately got uh, stays uh, so that the uh, the bans continue to be in place as we pursue the appeal and, and and we are now in federal appellate court defending our common sense gun laws. I mean, the assault weapons ban has been in place for 30 years and the large capacity magazine ban put in place by the people of this state. Uh, the people of the state want it. The, the, they make us safer. Um, they provide a pathway for more Americans to be safer across the country. And um, unfortunately, these, they're, they're at risk because of uh, the decision of a district court judge here in California and because of a um, seminal Second Amendment case by the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, referred to in short as the Bruin decision. And we believe that under that analysis and prior analyses, uh, these these approaches that we've taken, large capacity magazine ban, assault weapons ban in California, they continue to be constitutionally compliant as they keep people safe. We're talking with State Attorney General Rob Bonta this hour, and you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. What questions do you have for Attorney General Bonta about the cases that he is either defending or bringing? We'll be talking about cases he's brought against Meta and Big Oil, and we're getting his reaction to the gun rights case the Supreme Court is hearing this morning and also hearing how he is trying to address gun violence generally and defend our laws against challenges. You can email your comments or questions to forum at kqed.org. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Discord. We're at KQED Forum. You can call us at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. Attorney General, rumors are swirling that you are considering a run for governor. Ever since you told the Chronicle, the Chronicle's Emily Hoven in May that you are seriously considering a run for the seat that Newsom will vacate in 2026. So are you? 
<laughs> right now, I'm, I'm very focused on the important work of California Attorney General. I'm in my, my first year of my first four-year term and grateful and honored for the opportunity to lean in and weigh in and be influential and make a difference on every issue that Californians are wrestling with. It's my goal, my vision, um, my desire to make the people of California's fights my fights and to fight by their side, whether it be housing or homelessness or, or crime or hate crimes or um, civil rights, constitutional rights, corporate accountability, um, you name it. Um, and the future, what, what it holds is um, something to be decided at the appropriate time. That mm. time is not now. And what can you tell us about what you meant by seriously considering? I meant that, that I'm seriously considering <laughs> running for governor. And I, that, that, that was true then. It's true now. I'm still seriously considering it. Um, but the priority now is to focus on the, the people of the state who need an attorney general fighting for them. That's what I'm doing. If you ran and were elected, you'd be the first Asian-American, Filipino-American to serve as California governor. Does that play a role in your approach to leading California? I guess that depends on on those who see that as important. I personally see it as important. It's part of who I am. So it, 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 I, I can't see it any other way. I was I was born in another country. My parents brought me here when I was two months old because they wanted me to have the things here in California that I wasn't going to have there. They wanted me to have democracy and freedom and human rights and civil rights and due process and the rule of law all under threat because a dictator rose to power, declared martial law exactly a year from the date of my birth. And so uh, my parents sought opportunity in a better life here. And uh, my mom is an immigrant from the Philippines. She came here when she was 28 years old on a, on a ship ride that was three weeks long to go to graduate school. And she met my father and uh, who they are uh, and who I am are, are very um, defined by my Filipino-American experience. And so um, you, we all bring our lived experiences to our roles. I bring it to this role as AG and any future role I might have the honor and privilege of, of holding. We're sitting down with Attorney General Rob Bonta, and we'll have more with him and with you, our listeners, after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Rob Bonta, Attorney General of the state of California. He took office in 2021 after being appointed by Governor Newsom when former AG Javier Becerra left the position to become Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services for President Biden. Before becoming AG, Bonta was an assembly member representing Oakland, Alameda, and San Leandro. And you, our listeners, are joining our conversation with Attorney General Bonta at 866-733-6786 at our email address, forum at kqed.org, on our social channels, at KQED Forum. Let me go to Adam in San Francisco. Adam, you're on. Good morning. Uh, Mr. Panta, can California adopt strict rules about guns to save us our life? It's very difficult. I never have gone to Oakland for over a year, from what I hear. This is my first question. My second question, you have a good position. Can you do something for more thousands of business uh, small businesses across the country by going after Yelp Corporation located in San Francisco that use extortion, massive extortion. You have us or we'll drive out of business and they use fake reviews. In fact, they have their mm. own fake reviewers called Yelp uh, uh, something. I'm Please not do sure something about it. I'm yeah, not I, sure what business Adam is talking about, but maybe the first part of his question about why it's so hard for California to have stricter gun laws because he's concerned about violence, it sounds like in Oakland. Well, th- thank you for your question. Uh, gun violence is a top priority uh, issue for me to address and confront and um, to help resolve here in the state of California. And one of the uh, approaches has been the common sense gun laws that California has. Our, our common sense gun laws are among the strongest in the nation. When you have independent reviews that look at all the states, California often comes at the very top or near the top when it comes to the um, the, the power and potency, um, the wisdom and the common sense approach to our, our gun laws. And so uh, we have a lot of the tools that we know will reduce and prevent gun violence in place. What are they? Large capacity magazine bans, assault weapons ban, red flag laws, um, background checks, waiting periods. Uh, we've addressed ghost guns as well. So uh, we have a strong regulatory regime here in California. We believe it's constitutionally compliant. Courts have so far believed, uh, agreed with us, uh, but they, as earlier uh, discussed, they are they are under threat. So we are defending our common sense gun laws in court to keep you and other Californians safe. And we are always looking for uh, the next approach to use um, ceasefire and violence intervention programs, or CalVIP, as it's uh, commonly referred to, is a, a place where I think we can continue to make progress and. Uh, we're always looking to the, the the next important step we can take as a as a state to to keep you safer in in your communities. I'd like to ask you about how your office is actually handling police violence now. Last week, you announced you would not be charging the four Anaheim police officers who shot and killed Brandon Lopez in 2021. Officers shot Lopez. 18 times, according to the report from your office, and they believed officers said that. What was a gun was actually a black drawstring bag containing a water bottle. Why did you decide not to bring charges against these officers or find them criminally liable? Let me first say that uh, under AB 1506, a, a bill that I was the co-author of when I was in the California State Legislature, it requires that the California Attorney General conduct investigations and make prosecution decisions on officer-involved shootings that lead to the death of an unarmed Californian. And this was a, a qualifying incident here uh, with Mr. Lopez. And so we conducted a, a deep investigation of the case. We were um, uh, pr- present um, for um, uh, 
talking to witnesses and uh, developing evidence and collecting evidence, looking at the video, body cam footage. And we have to make it had to make a determination based on the existing facts and law about whether uh, a prosecution for homicide was something that we could um, pursue and successfully prove beyond a reasonable doubt in a court of law. And part of what we had to well, part of our burden was to um, prove that there was uh, no uh, self-defense defense that could be um, um, used uh, by by the defendants in this case, and that was something we could not overcome based on the facts and the law. There was a, in this case, there was an early uh, observation, ended up being wrong, but it was in the minds of all of the law enforcement officers on scene that uh, Mr. Lopez had a gun. And when Mr. Lopez exited the vehicle, he um, was um, running in one direction and then immediately turned and ran directly towards the law enforcement officers. So you have an individual who is uh, running at and toward law enforcement officers who the law enforcement officers believe to have a gun. And so we um, determined uh, that we could not overcome a self-defense uh, defense in this case and, and not meet our burden. And so that's why we decided uh, appropriate under the facts and law not to prosecute. Uh, we also provided quite a few uh, recommendations for tactical changes um, that we believe could uh, help um, avoid such a situation in the, in the past and may have, if done differently, avoided the situation here. And that's part of our duty under AB 1506 to provide guidance on uh, better tactics like uh, de-escalation, um, use of force, use of body cameras, etc. So you're saying the facts were not there, even though you did make some strong recommendations for changes at the department. One of the things, though, that Brandon Lopez's mother, Joanna, who was quoted in the Voice of OC, as saying was that the investigation took so long and that it delayed their ability to push for civil remedies in the courts because the invest the police could cite that they were under investigation and not provide information to the public as a result of that. Are you satisfied with the timeline of these types of investigations that your office is conducting? I am dissatisfied with the timeline of these investigations. We are not uh, completing them as fast as I like, and we will change that. Uh, you will see a number of investigations that come to complete resolution with public um, disclosure uh, as we approach the end of this year, uh, multiple before the end of this year, and really? multiple at the end as we turn into the next year. I, I, I feel for the families of those who um, uh, who have lost loved ones in these incidents and are awaiting our review, who want us to tell them uh, what happened and what the facts and the law dictate here, and to also provide um, guidance to the law enforcement agency about how they can do things differently consistent with best practices going forward. Uh, they're right to want answers sooner. I want the answers sooner, and I'm pushing um, my team to provide them sooner. It, whenever you start something, um, you are a, a little slower and not as good at the beginning than you are when you've done it 100 times. And so we just stood up our AB 1506 team um, last year. Um, we've been doing it for just over a year. And uh, we want to be thorough. We want to be accurate. We want to be comprehensive. And we want to do it expeditiously. We, you can do both. And so um, going forward, uh, you will see improvements. You will see changes. You will see faster conclusions uh, to our investigations being reported out to the public. How many investigations are currently pending? There's usually about 40 incidents per year historically. Mm -hmm. And the exact number, um, I don't believe, is, is that high because um, 
Last year, they were actually less than the historical average in terms of qualifying incidents, officer-involved shootings that lead to the death of an armed Californian. Um, so there are certainly many more pending than have been resolved, and uh, we're trying to flip that around so that there are more resolved than pending and that we are getting from beginning to end. So from date of incident to date of final report and conclusions being reported out in a year uh, or less consistently. So this is the, the fourth time out of four investigations that the, ta- the task force has completed into police conduct that police have been cleared of criminal liability. And again, Joanna Lopez sort of questioned the purpose of this task force. And I, I, I think it's a fair question. Why should the public still believe the law that you co-authored has force if it hasn't resulted in any findings of fault? The process is what's important here. And uh, what about the process is important? That an independent entity, the California Department of Justice, conduct the investigation as opposed to the district attorney's office that works every day, appropriately so, with the law enforcement officers that they're investigating. Uh, The public doesn't necessarily trust the latter. They trust the former, meaning the independent investigation. And we, there's no percentage, a right percentage of, of, of how many findings uh, should um, lead to a prosecution of a law enforcement officer or how many shouldn't. The facts and the law will determine it. And we take the facts and the law as they come. Uh, the cases that we've looked at, after looking at the facts and the law, the conclusions have been um, accurately and appropriately what they've been. That, there is, uh, that we cannot pursue a, a criminal case in these instances. At the same time, there are many tactical uh, improvements and changes that could be adopted by the law enforcement agencies, which we, which we have shared. Who knows what the future will hold? I mean, right now, uh, we just got a courtroom for a, a, a case in Riverside County, the Sanchez case, where we are prosecuting an officer uh, uh, for... Uh, criminally uh, killing an individual. So when the facts and the law uh, dictate it, uh, we will pursue it. When they don't, we are ethically um, and duty-bound, ethically obligated and duty-bound to to, to not pursue something that we cannot prove in a court of law based on the facts and the law. Let me go to caller Oscar in Vallejo. Oscar, you're on. Well, this is just incredibly timely because what about Jared Kahn and the Vallejo Police Department and the execution of Sean Monterosa. There is a video of this, the entire incident on the Vallejo Police Department's website. It has been there for three years now. Two years ago, you said you would do something about it, and the people of Vallejo had waited too long. Jared Tonnant fired a rifle through a window of a, in the backseat of an unmarked patrol vehicle or an unmarked uh, van, and, and hit Sean Monterosa in the head. And he was unarmed. He was walking out of a Walgreens. He had no weapon in his hand. Um, it was an execution. Anybody that's in law enforcement, anybody that's a prosecutor, anybody that knows anything about the criminal justice system who watches that would file charges instantly against the person that fired that, that weapon. Oscar, thank you. Attorney General? Uh, thank you for your, your, your comments. I am very aware of the case. We have been doing exactly what we said we would do from the day we said it, which is 
uh, investigate the case, look at all the evidence, um, interview uh, witnesses who are available to be interviewed, look at the, the, the videos that you've mentioned and other material evidence to be able to make a, a, a decision. This is not uh, an AB 1506 case, by the way. It is an abuse of discretion case, which we took. Yes. And uh, we are um, soon going to be announcing our decision on that case. We have also uh, taken important steps to um, work with the Vallejo Police Department to get them to adopt and embrace and enact best practices when it comes to constitutional policing. Uh, there has been, uh, in my view, a pattern and practice of, of, of policing in Vallejo that is disturbing and it needs <laughs> great uh, improvement. And so we have worked with them uh, on that and we made an announcement as as you may have seen a couple weeks ago, indicating uh, the very important and material and substantial changes that the Vallejo Police Department will be adopting to get on the right track. Yes, your office filed a consent decree with the city of Vallejo last month. And, and I am just curious if you could say in broad strokes, at least, what you are requiring Vallejo to do, given its department's very high rate of police killings and very slow investigations of those incidents. You know, we have a whole menu of best practices that if every law enforcement agency department adopted them, there would be a, in our view, the, 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 a safer community, a community that has more trust in their police departments and law enforcement agencies and constitutional um, uh, police practices that honor the civil rights of the community that they are keeping safe. And so for Vallejo, there were quite a number of areas that needed improvement. Certainly, um, incidents of excessive force that led to death. So use of force, uh, reporting, um, arrests, searches, seizures, uh, the policies that, that, that are used for uh, those practices. There, it's a broad variety of sort of top to bottom review of practices that, of, for the Vallejo Police Department. Um, also, you know, reporting, oversight, accountability, all important to uh, building that trust back with the, the community in Vallejo where it's been so damaged over the last few years. So if they don't meet your requirements on time, what happens? We have enforcement mechanisms. That's what a consent decree is. It's a court order. Uh, we can go and, and we have a, a monitor who does oversight, who can help ensure that the commitments are, are actually implemented. Uh, we worked with the Vallejo Police Department earlier and made a set of recommendations, not all of which were adopted. So we escalated to a consent decree to ensure that there was a court, a court order in place, a monitor in place, and the ability to go to court to enforce the terms of the consent decree when, when and if necessary. We believe they won't be necessary, but they are, uh, that, that mechanism and that tool is available to us should we need it. We're sitting down this hour with State Attorney General Rob Bonta talking about how his office is handling investigations into fatal police shootings and also hearing from you, our listeners, at 866-733-6786. I'd like to turn to some of the major civil cases that your office is managing now. The first is your lawsuit against Meta, which owns Facebook, Instagram, so on. You are co-leading a group of 33 state attorneys general who are party to an action against Meta. Can you describe what your concerns are, the theory of your case? What is Meta doing in your view? How is it violating laws? In short, Meta is pro providing a platform that knowingly hurts children and they are lying about it. Hmm. That's what it is in short. And 
Meta is a new name for many. Uh, they they operate Facebook and Instagram, so those those platforms may be well known to more people. Um, but they have a platform uh, that seeks to maximize the number of engagements uh, uh, by young people and maximize the duration of those engagements. And they know from their own studies and reviews that the impact on children of their platform is depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation, body image issues, um, learning loss, lack of sleep, isolation, and they do it anyway. And they use tools uh, which internally they have called addictive, uh, but externally lied about and say they are not addictive. They have things like infinite scroll and autoplay. They have a, a plastic surgery filter that shows what you would look like with plastic surgery. They have likes and popularity metrics that they know are problematic. They have a, an algorithm which they also know uh, is problematic. They have beeps and alerts which go off in, when children are in school and when they're sleeping. And um, they know from their own studies, and there's a, there is a, um, a mountain of mounting evidence that shows the damage uh, it causes to children, and it doesn't have to be this way. They have made a choice to continue to provide a platform that harms children. And when uh, children are knowingly harmed by adults who know better, and those adults are lying about it, it is my job to step in and hold them accountable, as we've done here with our colleagues from across uh, the nation. And look, this is a multi-state, bipartisan effort. You don't often see that these days. And when you have agreement and coalescing around uh, the, uh, by AGs across the country to protect children in this way, um, I think it sends a, a it, it is a very powerful statement and a powerful message. Meta has said that they're disappointed that the attorneys general have taken this route and that they share your commitment to teen safety online and have already rolled out tools to users and so on. So what are you seeking exactly in terms of, of penalties or results? You know, um, we're mostly seeking injunctive relief, meaning change of behavior by the platform. So they don't engage in the practices that they know lead to all of these uh, mental health and some physical health um, uh, challenges for, for children. So we want them to change their practice. For example, what does that look like? Instead of having a, a, an algorithm like they do now, they can have an organic algorithm which feeds content more organically. Um, they could stop collecting uh, information about children under 13 in violation of, of federal law. We think that one's a, a no-brainer. They, they could do that quickly. Um, and you know some of these uh, addictive tools that they use, um, they could they could change those practices or um, um, tweak them in certain ways so that we don't have the same um, detrimental outcomes. We're talking about the cases that Attorney General Rob Bonta is bringing on Californians' behalf, and we'll learn more after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. State Attorney General Rob Bonta is suing Meta or Facebook and Instagram and also Big Oil. And Attorney General Bonta, I want to ask you about that right now. You filed a major lawsuit against ExxonMobil and other oil companies, and uh, you're accusing basically the companies of hiding the harm that they're causing, that they knowingly caused. What are you alleging here with regard to what they knew about the impacts of their company's practices? You know, we're suing the largest fossil fuel companies in the world, ExxonMobil, Shell, Chevron, ConocoPhillips, and British Petroleum, as well as the American Petroleum Institute for what we in short are calling climate change deception. The fact that they knew since the 60s and even earlier that their product that they were um, selling around the world and trying to sell as much of as possible was going to put this world and our people in exactly the position that we are in today. They knew about um, global warming. They knew about extreme weather. Their scientific studies showed that. And they thought that was a problem for their bottom line and that that would potentially decrease sales. So they lied about it. They commissioned industry, uh, commissioned studies to cast doubt on the existing science that they knew to be true. They published op-eds and articles to undermine and dilute the science. Um, uh, Meanwhile, internally, when they're talking to themselves, um, they are saying that uh, we will be um, exactly where we are today. They they predicted with terrifying accuracy uh, the climate change challenges that we have with extreme weather uh, today. So we have sued them, and we are the largest uh, economic entity, the largest geographic entity to sue these fossil fuel companies for climate change deception. We have different theories, including public nuisance, a number of causes of action that rest on the, this idea of deception. We also have an attorney general um, specific cause of action around destruction of natural resources, and then we have some products liability claims. But it is the most robust complaint um, by the biggest entity um, so far against uh, the fossil fuel industry, and we believe it's a game changer. The oil companies are responding. Their general counsel said that it's a meritless suit, a politicized suit against a foundational American industry, a distraction from important national issues and an enormous waste of California taxpayer resources. They say climate policy is for Congress to debate and decide, not the court systems. Your response? That spin is consistent with the spin that they use for decades to lie about the impacts of climate change. So not a surprise to, to hear the spin, just to, to hear the defensiveness. Uh, this is not about policy. This is about a cause of action that exists, a public nuisance, uh, been used in, in other similar cases. Um, think uh, tobacco or lead paint, uh, even opioids. This is a tool that we have available to us as attorneys general to hold entities, corporate entities, Um, accountable when they use a playbook that we are seeing too often, when they know that their product harms the people of this state, 
the people of, our, of this nation, and they see it as problematic to their bottom line and their endless pursuit of profits and elevating profits over people, so they lie about it. And unfair competition law and uh, other deception-based uh, causes of action are, are, are very sound um, bases. So they want to think that this is a, they want you to think this is a policy issue. It's not. It's a standard uh, cause of action, uh, a, a case that we're bringing in court uh, based on the facts and the law, and it's very sound. And what do you think relief to the state of California would look like in this case? Well, these public nuisance claims have a very specific uh, form of relief called an abatement fund. And it's been used, again, uh, with, with, with opioids and lead paint and tobacco, um, where the offending entities here who have violated the law put uh, millions, billions of dollars, whatever it takes to address the public nuisance that they've created. So think a fund um, that, is, that is seeded by... Um, these fossil fuel uh, companies that address um, extreme weather, that address drought and flood and, and super typhoons and storms and um, all the impacts of the hot's getting hotter and the wet's getting wetter and the dry's getting drier. Well, listener Tom writes, I just want to acknowledge Rob's life-saving work when he was a city councilman in Alameda. We worked together on the city animal shelter in Alameda mm-hmm. and transferred it to a capable nonprofit. He was a thoughtful problem solver. Best guess is that about 700 companion animal lives are thereby saved per year, and that was 10 years ago. Those animals and their people have greatly benefited. Thanks, Rob. <laughs> Another listener, <laughs> Walter. Kind. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. Another listener, Walter, writes. I appreciate the Attorney General's efforts on basic cases on safety and equity, like Meta and Elk Grove and federal gun issues, but I feel all of California politics and government is now ignoring the very poorest disability communities. Please ask about recent cases on disability rights, accessibility, and independent living. Uh, Great question. And, you know, one of the things that uh, I found to be true as a a public servant is um, the public doesn't always know all the things that we're doing. And it's, it's not their fault. Uh, it's our job to share and to inform and to um, communicate. And so we have. We have a newsletter that we're very proud of. We put out every week that talks about the work that we're doing and the focal points for that week. And, um, you know, I believe that the people of California, that they're my bosses. And I report to them and I want to inform them what we're working on. We have created a, a disability rights uh, commission in my office. We have met with disability rights leaders throughout the state to address a number of uh, issues and priority um, initiatives for the disability uh, rights community. Uh, We've issued guidance, uh, which we do as the chief law officer, on uh, appropriate ways to enforce the the rights and protections for uh, members of the the, um, disability community. So this is an area of, of, of focus and priority for us. We've been working on the space. I'm sorry that our, our communication of those efforts haven't made it to all who are interested, um, but we have um, people on my team and, and, and information on our website that um, shares more about all of the great work that we, we have proudly done in support of our disability community in California. How the state plans to deal with the fentanyl crisis is top of mind for a lot of Californians. You have indicated that the state supports local district attorneys in bringing murder charges in fentanyl-related deaths. I think the first person to be convicted of murder in a fentanyl overdose case was recently sentenced to 15 years in in Placer County. How do you think this approach will help mitigate this crisis? Why do you support that? So just to be clear, it was 15 years to life and in, in Placer and... 
Um, let me let me back up and say people are rightfully in California interested in what their leaders are doing to address fentanyl. In my view, uh, our fentanyl crisis is a full state of emergency. Um, uh, we're in a state of crisis, and we need to do what we do when we're in a state of emergency and state of crisis, which is use all tools in the toolbox and all hands on deck. And that means everyone has a role throughout the state. Certainly, I do, and I, I take that responsibility and duty very seriously. But lo local law enforcement uh, do as well, community leaders, public health leaders. This is a criminal justice issue and a public health issue all at the same time. And we need to come at it from a public health perspective, uh, harm reduction, education, um, rehabilitation, uh, uh, addressing addiction. We also need to come at it from an educational perspective, awareness about fentanyl, where it is, and the fact that it can be laced into uh, innocent-looking uh, drugs and that one pill can kill. That's all very important. We also need enforcement. We need to arrest people when they are part of the fentanyl supply chain. And uh, litigation and policy are also important. We've sued opioid industry, um, the players across uh, the country, and brought in $2 billion for the state of California to address um, mitigation and, and harm reduction. So we need to use all the tools. And you, your question focuses on one of them, and we shouldn't disarm ourselves of the other tools. So let me just put that aside and say I'm happy to talk about this one tool. And... Um, and it's been talked about, and it is not a panacea uh, to addressing fentanyl. But in some circumstances, it's within a district attorney's discretion under existing law to bring a homicide case against an individual who supplies fentanyl to another um, when there is knowing disregard for that individual's life. Essentially, they know that fentanyl can kill, and they supply it to the individual knowing uh, that it can kill that person, but they disregard it. And so we lead a special investigations unit in Placer, the Placer Special Investigations Unit. And we have led it since the late 80s. It's something we've done for decades, for years. We've been doing this work with Placer proudly, working with the great partners there. We lead the investigations and the arrests. Uh, we we led the investigations and the arrests of a, of a um, of two individuals who supplied fentanyl to two others who died. And the DA, based on um, the evidence that we helped gather and put together, made a decision in his discretion to bring homicide charges. And the facts and the law support it, in, in my view. Um, are we going to address the fentanyl state of crisis by um, charging as many people as possible with homicide? That will not, that will not address it. Uh, by itself. We need to do all the other things I talked about, policy and litigation and public health approaches and prevention um, and awareness and uh, working as high up the supply chain as possible. We know that fentanyl is coming in largely through our southern border. That's why we joined uh, the fentanyl abatement and suppression team in San Diego to uh, detect, deter, um, disrupt and dismantle fentanyl operations um, at the point where they are entering our state before it is, they are distributed up the arteries of, uh, of, of California and into our communities and neighborhoods. I believe that is sound. That is the way to protect um, the most people um, and keep them safe. So my heart goes out to everyone who's lost someone to, to fentanyl. It, it's tragic. And uh, we will continue to use all the tools in the toolbox to confront and address and um, face the fentanyl epidemic. We're talking with California Attorney General Rob Bonta, who has been in office since 
2021. And you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. This listener writes, when will someone be brave enough to sue gun manufacturers? They make products whose only purpose is to kill people. If you want to drive a car, you must pass a written test, a driving test, and have insurance. If you get too many points on your license, you cannot legally drive. At a minimum, that should be a model for gun ownership. Don't know if you have a response to that, but you're free to. To sue gun manufacturers? Uh, Well, there's a federal... Um, problem uh, uh, with that or a barrier, an industry-specific immunity. Uh, In short, it's called PLACA, and it provides immunity for gun manufacturers and uh, distributors and sellers. And uh, California uh, used a a, a legal component of that law to provide a pathway to sue gun manufacturers, sellers, and distributors, a law that I was proud to co-author, or excuse me, to, to sponsor. Um, under certain circumstances when they are um, not taking appropriate steps to prevent um, guns from getting into the hands of uh, folks like straw purchasers or those who are prohibited or allowing them to be stolen by not taking common sense approaches. So um, under existing federal law, we have taken the most aggressive steps possible to hold accountable gun manufacturers and provide pathways for them to be sued under the appropriate circumstances. I want to ask you about some significant cases that your office has brought against California jurisdictions. I'd like to ask you about your suit against Chino Valley Unified School District for implementing a policy that requires schools to inform parents if a student requests to use uh, a different name or pronoun, different from their official records, um, even if it's against their wishes. Why, Why do you see this as breaking the law? Because it does break the law. These are elected adults who have taken an oath to follow the Constitution of the state of California and uphold the law and are not doing so. And they are going out of their way to hurt kids, vulnerable kids. They are targeting one group of children only, transgender and gender nonconforming children, and implementing a forced outing policy against them. It violates manages to violate multiple sections of our state constitution and multiple state statutes. It violates the state equal protection clause. It violates uh, state privacy protections. It violates the government code and the education code under state statute, uh, all with their one um, policy uh, in Chino Valley. And others are modeling policies after Chino Valley as well. And um, it seems to be an, an organized movement to go after and target and harm kids and violate their rights, um, trample their rights, and put them uh, in harm's way and to threaten their safety. Um, young people, uh, transgender and gender nonconforming uh, people, the data shows 15% of them are uh, become homeless or are kicked out of their own home because of their identity, because of who they are that 10% are um, victims of violence from a direct family member. And this policy puts children in harm's way in 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 addition to violating their rights. And don't just take my word for it. Two separate judges on two separate occasions agreed with us in granting a restraining order and then granting a preliminary injunction. And they both found that we are likely to succeed on the merits in our case um, and that um, children are um, under under threat and 
and uh, under risk and that their safety is being being threatened. So, uh, so far we've been uh, pleased by the court decisions that affirm our position and it's our job, uh, my job as a California Attorney General to protect all Californians, especially our most vulnerable, when they are targeted and their rights are violated and their safety is threatened. And that's what we're doing here. And that's the status of the case now that it's paused, that it's the stay is in place. This policy hasn't gone forward in that particular district, correct? That's correct. But there are, as you say, other districts that have done similar uh, policies as well. You've also noted uh, that it appears to be part of a coordinated campaign. And on the other side of it, it's to bring attention to issues like this and to galvanize potentially a conservative base. How do you respond to fears that that you are playing into that by bringing this suit and drawing so much attention to this in the state of California? We look at the facts and the law. Uh, we look at the, the victims here, who's being hurt, um, young vulnerable children, and and that's it. And we believe that it is the right thing to do from a legal uh, perspective. The facts and the law dictate it. As again, our courts have shown that we've been right on this issue. And um, I believe it's also uh, morally the right thing to do. And so um, whether some people think it's popular or not popular, it's the right thing to do. And uh, that's how I make my decisions. Um, and, yeah. you know, I mean, look, there's people on the other side I'm very aware of. They're, they're, they're screaming from the rooftops, this is about parent rights. It is not. Um, they, it is, uh, you cannot be pro-parent if you're anti-child. These policies are anti-child. And it doesn't matter what you call it. It doesn't matter what your frame, your spin, what script you're reading from is. If it violates a child's rights, their constitutional rights and their statutory rights, then you can't do it. Um, I'm sorry you're trying to justify it by saying it's parental rights, but it doesn't work that way. And the courts have agreed with us. And, um, you know, I, some people want to proceed uh, by, by looking at the polls and doing what the polls say. I want to proceed by doing what's right and doing what is uh, what the law requires and protecting vulnerable uh, Californians, including some of our most vulnerable children. We just have 20 seconds, but we've talked about a broad range of cases. And I do wonder if you wanted our listeners to know sort of what personal philosophy guides and informs your approach to being California's top cop, what would you say it is? To protect our most vulnerable against the abuses of the powerful and to be the people's attorney. And I saw this when my mom and dad organized with everyday people. They wanted their elected officials to stand with them, and most of the time they didn't. And I always wanted to be an elected official who stood with the people, who lifted them up, who made their lives better, who protected them from those who were trying to hurt them and violated the law in the process. That's why I became an attorney. That's why I'm honored and grateful to have this position, which is the honor of a lifetime as attorney general. I'm gonna protect as many Californians as I can uh, as long as I'm in this role. State AG Rob Bonta, thank you. Thank you, listeners. Thank you, Susie Britton, for producing today's segment. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence. 
June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.